0: Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. <laughs> Violet here. This week we're going to Granada in southern Spain at one of the most important years in the history of not only Europe but the whole world. In 711, a band of Berber tribesmen made the short voyage from North Africa to southern Spain, landing near Gibraltar. To their surprise the local people welcomed them and within a short time they had conquered most of the peninsula defeating the Visigoths, who had ruled as an unpopular elite for several centuries. The land they found mesmerised them with its beauty and natural abundance. They settled down, built cities, and were joined by Arabs from across the vast Muslim Empire, who made Al-Andalus their home. Communities of Jews, who had suffered terrible persecution under the Visigoths, flourished as did the Christians who chose to stay and live under Muslim rule. As the centuries passed, a vibrant civilization, one of the most sophisticated on earth, developed. Al-Andalus became famous for its doctors, architects, philosophers, craftsmen and scholars. Towards the end of the 11th century, Christian Europeans, who had retained a foothold in the far north of the peninsula, began the long process of Reconquista, reclaiming the lands they saw as being rightfully theirs. The city of Toledo fell in 1085 and over the following centuries, these forces made their way slowly southwards, gradually defeating the Muslim rulers of the small city-states like Saragossa and Seville. We are visiting this watershed moment in excellent company. Professor Elizabeth Drayson is Emeritus Fellow in Spanish at Murray Edwards College, the University of Cambridge and she is an expert on Spanish culture and literature. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Travels Through Time, Elizabeth Drayson. Um I'm very much looking forward to talking to you today. Well,
1: thank you for inviting me.
0: So we are going to be talking about your beautiful um, new book, which was published in the summer, which is called Lost Paradise, The Story of Granada. As a way of starting, I thought you you could maybe just tell us a bit about your connection with um, that part of the world and why you decided you wanted to write this book?
1: Yes. Um, Well, in a way I've been thinking about Granada for most of my professional life. I first went to Granada as a research student many years ago and made such a vivid impression on me. I remember I arrived on a day in August and it was nearly 50 degrees and birds were dropping off the trees with the heat. Um, and I was just immediately struck by the extraordinary atmosphere of the place. Um, it has a tangible atmosphere of, of uh, I think, nostalgia and, and romance about it, and it intrigued me. And I wanted to write this book, really, for two reasons. Um, the first one being that I um, there isn't a book on the history of Granada, a, a general book of this kind. And It's such an important place uh, historically and culturally. It's right up there, you know, with Rome, Istanbul, Venice, and so on. Um, So I felt it was was quite an important thing to to try and do. Um, And also, in a way, it followed logically out of what I'd written before, because I'd written two books set in Granada before that, one um, which was about a series of uh, extraordinary archeological forgeries that were found on a mountainside, uh, outside Granada, and then my previous one was on. It was about the last uh, Muslim sultan of Granada, so it was a kind of progression of a subject that I'm I'm passionate about.
0: Yeah, just take us there for a few minutes. Just walk us around the city for a few minutes. What What's it like walking around? What does it look like?
1: I think probably the thing that strikes most people is um, that it's in a in a way two cities now. Um, In one sense, it's a very modern European city. It has its big department stores. It has blocks of flats, none of them really high rise, but um, it has a sort of modern side to it. Then when you walk to the city center, you're kind of taken into the world of the past and um, starting perhaps with the Catholic cathedral, which is a very striking building, built on the site of, of, of a mosque originally. Um, and then a bit further away from that, you step into the district known as the al and you're, you're immediately in another world. It's rather like stepping into a town or a city in North Africa. It's, um, you can hear people speaking Arabic in the al can uh, You can buy Arabic uh, goods and Arabic food. Uh, and, and then, of course, if you walk a bit further, you come to great Islamic palace of the Alhambra so it's culturally uh, an extraordinary mix um, of of different um, different heritage I I think and you can really feel that Uh, it's very striking when you're when you're there for the first time I think.
0: So I think we should just have a very brief overview of the history of Granada um, just in order to sort of set the scene because um, it was F- founded was it founded by the Romans or even even
1: earlier? Uh, it was founded even earlier, Violet. It um, was founded by the native uh, Iberian people um, as long ago as the seventh century before Christ, and they built a settlement on the site where Granada stands now. Um, and they had quite a thriving community there. And it wasn't until, well, really, nearly seven hundred years later, in forty four BC, when Uh, it became colonized by the Romans and became a Roman settlement. And it was known as Florentia, the colonizers. That was all part of um, really Spain being part of the Roman state at that time, the Roman Empire. Um, And then quite some time after that, the Romans sent in, I suppose, um, some people who were really caretakers for them. They were the Visigoths, who were originally a Germanic tribe, um, and they, they were Christian, um, and ultimately they became Catholic Christians, um, and they ruled in Spain from about the 400s to the early 8th century, um, and they, they um, were in, in Granada as well. And then after the, the important year really is 711, um, Granada for the first time became a Muslim city. Um, after the uh, the Muslim uh, invasion of Spain Um, and then it remained um, a Muslim city for 700 years up to 1492 and when it became a Catholic city which has remained ever since.
0: Yeah so it has this very mixed heritage as you say and I mean 700 years is an enormously long time isn't it So that's the sort of overview of the history. And now, can you just tell us a bit about the way that you approached and structured the book? Because I thought it was very interesting how you you haven't just written a sort of linear chronological history. So can you just talk a bit about how you decided, how you structured it, and also then how you decided to do that?
1: Uh, Yes, sure. Um, Well, basically, although part of the book follows a chronological linear narrative, some of the chapters are interspersed with sections about um, certain groups of people whose stories really didn't fit into that uh, linear structure so well. Um, And I decided to do that. Um, The the people were the Jews who formed a big part of Granada's population, Um, the the Gypsies, uh, likewise, who came to Spain in the 15th century and settled in Granada and brought their music and flamenco to Granada and to Spain. And also to the women of the city who have played um, a vital role uh, in the city throughout its history. And of course, I wanted to tell their stories really over a period of time that didn't fit in so well with a linear narrative. I thought they deserved to have um, to have individual sections devoted to them. So it's kind of interspersed with um, chapters, sections about the certain groups of people, marginalised people particularly.
0: Yeah, and I thought it was a really a really interesting way of approaching it and made it um, a much more, yeah, a, a much better way of doing it than just a, just a straight chronology. I think now um, I should ask you the question we ask all our guests, which is, of course, if you could travel back in time to a particular year, which year would it be?
1: I would travel back to the year 1492. And I've chosen that because I think from a historical perspective, um, it was an extremely unusual year because not just one, but several events took place which were um, really of crucial importance to the future, not just of Europe, but also to the world. Um, And those events relate to the relationship between Islam and Christianity in Europe, uh, bearing in mind that um, Spain, uh, Granada had been um, had a Muslim presence for for nearly eight hundred years. Um, they also relate, I think, to the development of the modern nation state, um, which emerged really out of um, the unification of Spain by Ferdinand and Isabella, the Catholic monarchs. Um, and those events also relate to what I think was an urge to explore the unknown world. Um, And I suppose, in fact, most people think about Christopher Columbus if they think of the year 1492. Um, And his discovery of the Americas and uh, the discoveries of other explorers at that time, Portuguese explorers, uh, led to uh, the creation of a large European empire and, of course, later on to colonialism. So the events of that year are are really major events um, that have affected um the history of our world i think
0: mm, it was a sort of watershed moment if you like and can you talk a bit about the situation between not in spain because we're going to go and obviously go into that in in more detail in a minute but the 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 wider um relationship between the muslim and the uh, christian worlds at this point
1: um okay well um <laughs> europe i suppose had been have been christian uh, for several centuries, up to the year um, 711, up to the early eighth century, and then, after the shortly after the death of M- the prophet Muhammad, Islam really created for itself an enormous empire that stretched very far east, almost to China, um, and began to move westward. And it, it it first ventured into Europe through Spain, and um, as in 711, um, a group of Muslim um, troops arrived and they swept northwards, conquering the whole of the peninsula. Um, and they they also um, went as far as uh, southern France. They there is a kind of myth that they were finally stopped at the Battle of Batier in 732 by Charles Martel, who was Charlemagne's grandfather although they were stopped there, they still made various incursions into southern France um, into the ninth century. Um, So there was a kind of, I suppose, an uneasy relationship at this stage uh, with the rest of Europe and and the Muslim world. Um, It hadn't really developed into a full-blown animosity by this stage, Um, but, but obviously there was the fear of being invaded by an alien, Group of people um, which threatened the, the Christian religion. So um, at this time, at the beginning of the, that period, uh, there was a kind of uneasy relationship, I would say, between uh, Christianity and Islam. Yeah, and by
0: 1492, the points where the two meet, where there is tension, is is in the East, in Constantinople, and the uh, the Holy Land, and and um, the Crusades have obviously all happened, and that has dramatically changed the relationship i think hasn't it um and then obviously in spain spain has been gradually reconquered over a really long period i mean toledo falls to the christians in 1085 and then seville in 1248 i believe can you just tell us a little bit about what's been happening since then because we're now in in 1492 so you know several hundred years a couple of hundred years late, later, and Granada is still um, ruled by a Muslim ruler. So how, how has that sort of come about, that situation?
1: Well, it was really quite remarkable, actually, because, um, as you said, Seville fell uh, to the Christian armies in 1248, and it looked as if uh, Islam in Spain was about to extinguish completely. Um, the Christian armies uh, had pursued what they called the Reconquest, which was, in their view, um, reconquering the land they felt um, they had lost to Islam. And they'd been pushing for, since the middle of the 11th century, they'd pushed further and further south. So that after the conquest of Seville, uh, really only the Emirate of Granada remained. And what happened at that crucial time? How did the Emirate of Granada come into being? Well, a Muslim leader in Hayen. Whose name was the uh, Nasser, uh, proclaimed himself Emir um, of Granada and he founded the dynasty called the Nasrid dynasty. And um, in 1237, he made his capital in Granada um, and they built what was a completely Arabic speaking independent Islamic state in the kingdom of Granada because Granada is, is a is a province as well as a as being the name of the city, which lasted for 250 years. So it was against all the odds, really, that that happened. But in a way, it was the kind of swan song of Islamic rule in Spain. Mm. Uh, but, but they managed to stay independent um, uh, and defend themselves against the Christian attacks uh, for 250 years, up to 1492.
0: Yeah, and that takes us um, neatly to your first scene. So... Um... Can you tell us uh, exactly where we are and and what are we witnessing?
1: Okay, yes. Uh, Well, for my first scene, um, we are in Granada, which, as I said, at that stage was the capital of the Islamic Emirate, um, the last one in Europe. And the the date is the 2nd of January, 1492. We can imagine we're standing in a small crowd of people on the banks of the river Genil, Um, in Granada, which is about a mile from the city centre, and it's near what is now the Chapel of Saint Sebastian built on a former mosque. And so it's a clear cold day, it's early January, and before us is um, a king, Uh, he's dressed completely in black, he's wearing black velvet robes, he's riding, he's sitting astride a black horse, and he is waiting. And opposite him um, is another king and his queen. And in, in contrast, they are wearing lavish red and gold robes. Um, and they've got splendidly decked out horses uh, and a vast number of attendants. And they form you know, um, quite, a, uh, quite a contrast with his very modest appearance. And then there's complete silence. Um, and in that silence, he hands over a bunch of magnificent keys to a page boy who takes them and gives them to the king in red. And the king in red is exultant to receive them. And so who are these people? Well, the king in black is Muhammad Eleventh, who was known to the Christians as Boabdil because they couldn't pronounce his name. Uh, properly in Arabic, um, and he was the last Moorish Sultan of Granada and head of the Nasrid dynasty uh, of Muslim rulers of the city. And he hands the keys to the Catholic monarch, King Ferdinand II of Aragon and Queen Isabella I of Castile, who between them ruled nearly all of, uh, of Spain at that time except the Kingdom of Granada. And so Boabdil had come to Down to meet the Catholic monarchs, um, and he'd left the gate of the seven floors in the Alhambra Palace, which has never been reopened to this day, uh, according to his wishes. Um, And so he rode down the the steep slopes, which have magnificent views of the city he was about to leave forever. Um, And at this official public surrender uh, of Granada to the Christian enemy, um, he was recorded as saying in Arabic. Um, Sir, these are the keys of this paradise, and I and those inside it are yours. So in this scene, we're witnessing a transcendent moment in a centuries-old clash between Islam and Christianity in Europe, and the 2nd of January 1492 was a day of great jubilation and supreme conquest for the Christians, um, and one of great sadness and loss for the Muslims. And so Sultan Abu Abdel's handing over of the keys is the moment of surrender of his city, which marked the end of nearly 800 years of Islamic rule in Spain. And it was the transition of the Emirate of Granada uh, it, to a Christian territory. And it marked the end of the last Islamic state in Europe. And of course, this is also the moment <coughs> that set Spain on a course to become the greatest uh, power in, in modern Europe of its time. And it established the basis of the discovery of the Americas, too. so it's
0: a real moment, and um also a, a very emotional moment for for everyone concerned, but obviously for different reasons, as you have said. um so can you um before we talk about what happens next, can we just um can you just fill us in on the agreement that had been made between uh, Isabella and Ferdinand and um Boabdil? Uh, that led to this moment, because there was a sort of uh, an official agreement that had been made, wasn't there?
1: There was, Violet, yes. Um, This was one of the important characteristics, really, of Sultan Boyd deal. He he always wanted to negotiate um, and use diplomacy rather than uh, to fight to the bitter end, and he uh, did everything in his power to come to... um, a suitable agreement with Ferdinand and Isabella which would protect the rights of his people, of uh, the Granadan Muslims, um, for the future. And so they agreed on a document which they all signed which were called the Capitulations, and in it, uh, the Catholic monarchs promised to um, permit all Muslims left in Granada to uh, continue practicing Islam um, and to continue with, uh, with all their customs, with their dress, uh, with their everyday life, absolutely as normal um, for, for the duration, for, for all. Um, and that also included the Jewish population of Granada, but Abdil was very uh, keen that they should also be included in the terms of the surrender. Um, and of course, those terms weren't adhered to for very long, unfortunately.
0: No, as we we are going to see quite soon. But let's just go back and talk a little bit about how important this idea was of convivencia, as it's called in Spanish. Excuse my pronunciation. Um, but you know that this idea that Muslims and Jews and Christians could live together, because I believe that um, the at this point, by this point, um, Granada was no longer somewhere where there was this great sort of um, multicultural flourishing, as there had been a bit uh, earlier on. Um, but l- let's talk about um, earlier in in um, the history of Muslim Andalusia, because it that, that was very much a feature of their society, wasn't it? It
1: really was, and um, probably the the best example of that would have been um, the 8th and ninth centuries of uh, the capital of Cordoba, which was the capital of the Umayyad dynasty, the first dynasty um, of, of Muslim rulers in, in Spain. Um, and there uh, the, the emirs built the most bittering, sophisticated civilization. Um, and. They adopted a policy of tolerance. They considered that um, Christians and Jews were with me, they were people of the book, um, and they were very happy for them to pursue their own religions, provided they paid uh, a certain tithe, a tax um, to do so. Um, and so at that time, there was really a feeling, I think certainly in the reign of the Emir Abd al-Rahman III, who reigned in the 10th century, um, that there was a kind of, um, not an ideal society maybe, because there were conflicts, but but certainly Muslims, Christians and Jews all rubbed along together on a daily basis and worked together um, in a very um, visible way on the whole. Another example of that is um, in the 13th century when the Christian king Alfonso X worked with many uh, Muslim and Jewish um, scholars at his court in Toledo to create the great translation schools, which um, were really largely responsible for uh, just. for spreading um, the Arabic scientific and uh, cultural knowledge that was inherited by uh, the rest of Europe. Yeah. So that was another very powerful example of of convivencia.
0: Yeah. And also the Mozarabs, who were the old Christians, weren't they, from the sort of Visigothic times, who survived quite quite happily uh, worshipping in their own way under Muslim rule for 400 years, I think, was it? and And then, only to find themselves being persecuted by the Catholic Christians who then took over toledo and and other places um recently though there's been certain books have been written which seek to uh sort of do down this um this idea of convivencia and and, and to claim that actually you know we're it's being glorified and it actually wasn't this this great um multicultural, harmonious situation. And I, I just wonder if you have any, you know, what do you think of that? What, what, Why do you think people want to, nowadays, want to deny
1: it? Um, I think it's mainly because the argument has swung from, from one pole to another. Um, there was in the, I suppose, the, the late 1980s, early 1990s, when uh, people started to think about Um, the Islamic uh, presence and heritage in Spain after the regime um, came finally to an end and people felt more liberated to think about those kinds of things. Um, There was a kind of, I don't know, maybe a kind of nostalgia, but there was also a lot of of idealism. um, There was a very idealised view of the tolerance between um, the three people of the three religions in Spain in the past. Um, And... I think that what's happened more recently is that that has been countered by, if you like, a much more cynical attitude, mm. which pointed out that, well, you know, hey, there were lots and lots of conflicts and fighting going on um, all the time throughout that period. Um, so I think really the answer is that it's sort of in the middle of those two views. Mm. Um, I think there was a lot of tension, a lot of conflict, um, there was a huge amount of collaboration between Christians and Muslims, more so at different points in what's a huge time period, you know, nearly 800 years, Mm. and so it varied. Um, But we know certainly in the instances we've talked about that there was a lot of cultural collaboration. There was also military collaboration sometimes where uh, Muslims would fight with Christians against other Muslims or against other Christians. and so I think um, that we are viewing it from a very long historical perspective, whereas if you were in it at the time, it, it didn't seem as if um, it was one thing or the other. It was just, you know, how people got through everyday life. And, but I think the important thing really about this is that nevertheless people from three religions did coexist. They did live side by side um, for very long periods of time. Um, As you say, with the exception really of Granada at the end, there were Muslims and Jews, obviously, in Granada, but no uh, native-born Christians in Granada, only traders or people who'd come to visit. And I think that was due to the that time very antagonistic relations between the two sides
0: yeah but i mean the fact remains that under muslim rule for for most of the seven eight hundred years christians were allowed to live freely and worship in their their own way and so were jews and that was not the case um, after 1492 Um, so can you um so yeah so they he hands over the keys and um, Ferdinand and Isabella then enter the Alhambra, this incredible palace, don't they? And have the first Christian service, which is the sort of first step towards Christ- Christianizing this, um, this Muslim, um, well, mosque, I suppose, isn't it, inside the Alhambra? Um, so, can you just tell us a little bit about that? I believe Christopher Columbus was, was there in the congregation as well, is that right?
1: It absolutely was, yes. Um, yes. But, well, what had happened was all the, uh, the Christian dignitaries, bishops, um, and so on had gathered to, to meet in this place. Um, as you said, well, the flag, the Christian flag had been raised on the Alhambra, um, which the Muslim population had seen with, with some horror. Um, and so, in a way, this was a kind of symbolic. Uh, moment as well because it was the moment which signified the imposition of one religion of one culture upon uh, another, um, and it was a moment of, of great uh, rejoicing and great emotion, I think. Um, and as you say, interestingly, uh, Christopher Columbus was there. He'd been staying in the camp of the um, of the Christians with Ferdinand and Isabella since. Um, November of 1491, because he, he'd been basically <laughs> hanging around hoping uh, to get Isabella to make a decision about whether she would fund his uh, voyage to the explore what became the Americas, or what he discovered to be the Americas. Um, and so he was in their retinue, if you like. So he was a witness to that extraordinary moment.
0: That's an amazing coincidence, isn't it? so wonderful let's go on to your second scene which is a few months later
1: yes my second scene um well in the scene we're standing at the side of a very uh dry dusty road which leads to the southwestern spanish port of cadiz and it's in the month of july of 1492 so it's it's the sun is fierce it's you know you can feel all the the brunt of the, the Andalusian heat at this time of year. and um, We can imagine this uh, scene through the eyes of the royal chronicler. There was a man called um, Andres Bernaldez, and he was priest and chaplain to uh, the Bishop of Seville, um, and he described this in detail. Um, and, and what we witness in this scene is, is deeply distressing. Um, there are crowds of Jewish people, young and old, Uh, They're on foot, they're on donkeys, some are in carts, Uh, they're trudging along the road towards Cadiz to embark on the ships that will take them into exile from their homeland forever. And uh, some of them stop by the roadside, Um, some drop with exhaustion and heat, some are ill, even dying by the roadside. Um, And the the rabbis who are traveling with them uh, are constantly urging them to ignore the people who are shouting to them to convert to Catholicism and save themselves. And the rabbis make all the women and children uh, sing and play the tambourine to try and lift uh, their spirits. And when the Jewish travelers finally reach the port uh, and they see the ocean, all of them, men and women, begin to wail heartrendingly and they're begging God for mercy and for a miracle. And I think it's very telling that Bernaldev, who was a fierce anti-Sem- anti-semitist, um, was, was very moved himself, and he said it was a terrible, heartrending sight. It
0: must have been. It just—it seems so—it seems so difficult to understand why, what, what, why, why this happened. Like, what, what pushes people towards this kind of hatred and behavior. Can you shed any light on it?
1: Well, um, what happened in a very practical way was that on the 30th of April in 1492, so just four months after Boabdil had surrendered, um, the Edict of Granada, or the Alhambra Decree as it's sometimes known, um, was proclaimed uh, by Ferdinand and Isabella in the throne room of the Palace of the Alhambra. Um, And that edict stated that uh, all uh, the Jews of of Spain and Portugal, what we now call Spain and Portugal, let's Mm -hmm. say, had three months up to the 31st of July, either to become Christians or to leave the country, never to return. And they could take only a little personal property. They couldn't take any gold, silver, any coins. Um, And this was a complete, utter shock. It was totally unexpected. Um, because Ferdinand and Isabella had appointed tax officials uh, for the years 1492 to 1494 in the previous December. And it went totally
0: against what Deal had put in the the agreement that they'd made in the December before, didn't it, where he'd specifically said he wanted the Jews to be protected.
1: It was totally against that. They had reneged on that promise um, very, very soon. Uh, And, I mean, Jews were still buying and selling property in March, um, and they had no inkling, inkling at all of this impending disaster. Um, so, uh, you know, it ended a, a, a Jewish presence in Granada and in Spain uh, that had been there since the Roman era. And of course it was the last of a series of expulsions in Latin Europe that virtually erased the yeah. Jewish communities there.
0: Yeah, they weren't the only ones, were they? That's, that's for sure.
1: So, I mean, if you're talking about what was the motivation behind it, there's something, you know, that's been debated greatly. The, the official line was, it was fear of religious and moral corruption uh, that, uh, uh, that Judaism, from which Christianity actually derived, of course, was somehow going to, as they put it, revert Catholicism, mm. um, and only complete expulsion would, would prevent Christians from, from this fate. Um, and, and there are hints that it was actually the brainchild of the, uh, the fearsome inquisitor general, Tomás de Torquemada. Um, I mean, I think there's a certain irony in that as those people were boarding the ships to exile, Columbus was uh, preparing yeah. to set sail on his voyage of discovery to the Americas. And in fact, he sailed himself from Cadiz um, for his second and fourth voyages. But, you know it was a bit like the exodus, you know the biblical flight from Egypt and it's estimated that about a hundred thousand Jews that were expelled from Spain and Portugal altogether
0: but it also seems so um you're sort of cutting off your nose despite your face because even I think Isabella and Ferdinand their doctors were Jewish weren't they and the you know the medical community in Spain was made up of Jews I mean a huge number of Jews were doctors and um you know a lot of them held positions of authority and were very well educated and I don't know it's 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 mind-blowing isn't it really
1: yes well it led to a great cultural and economic impoverishment of Spain after that which yeah. lasted for for several hundred years in actual fact so yes you're absolutely right there yes <laughs>
0: um and do you think it was partly financial because, obviously, they said they couldn't take any of their money with them.
1: Definitely. Okay. I think that um, Ferdinand and Isabella wanted to swell their coffers. Uh, they now didn't have to pay uh, to fight the War of Granada, of course it was over, yeah. um, and they wanted to get more money to fund Columbus to go uh, and, and expand their, their, what they envisaged as their empire. So right. I'm sure it was, was a powerful motivation. And I think also um, there was an undeniable element, you know, however we try and rationalise it, of, of some kind of prejudice, which um, is irrational. Yeah. Uh, which has is, which is, which is beleaguered Jews, hasn't it, Jewish people?
0: Well, absolutely, absolutely. It, it does seem to be, uh, it's, it's something I... I You know, I wonder about with with Spain specifically and the Inquisition and that sort of really um, terrifying form of extreme Christianity which flourished there. Um, And I wonder if there's something specific about, I mean, I'm not saying it didn't happen in other countries because, you know, um, religion people have done the most atrocious things in the name of religion and continue to do so today but there does seem to be something very specific about the the sort of that uh, the Spanish version of that and the Inquisition and the way that it functioned
1: yes I think there was I mean it I think it was a combination of factors really there was the idea you know that Ferdinand uh, and Isabella were you know still exultant from their great triumph which was the ending of 800 years of Fighting to regain what they saw was their was their land. Uh, they'd they they'd conquered. They'd won the reconquest. It was finished. Um, and they wanted to make sure that this never happened again, and, and I think that was that's part of it. And and that led really to um, a kind of well, it is a kind of ethnic cleansing, to be quite yeah, honest. It's yeah. a kind of witch hunt, um, of course, against the Jews because they're not. They wanted to eliminate any kind of difference. You know, Spain, Spain went from being this country where, as we've said, uh, three people from three religions and cultures lived together, to being um, one a closed society where any kind of difference was um, not, not acceptable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as you see the expulsion of Moriscos, the converted Muslims who converted to Christianity, um, a, a bit later after this and also a similar thing was was attempted uh, with the gypsy population too so it really was very very ruthless and I think it's because um, you know the Muslim invasion cast such a long shadow in, uh, for the Christians at that time and they didn't they wanted to take every possible measure however extreme to to prevent that from happening again.
0: Yeah and I think for me one of the most well, I'm sure for lots of people the one of the most um, powerful moments in that process was uh, a few years later I think it was in 1501 um, in Granada when the cleric whose name you will pronounce much better than me Jimenez he literally made a bonfire of all the books in Arabic um, and burnt them in this enormous conflagration and, and sort of there was this idea that he was trying to erase the cultural memory of the Muslims of this 700-year um, period. It's really shocking and heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. a very
1: heartbreaking moment, I guess, it, it really was. And uh, luckily, a few were managed to be saved. Hmm. Um, people hid them. Yeah. Um, and quite a few medical texts uh, were taken to the, eventually to the Escorial Library. Um, but but you, know, you think of what actually was lost well yes
0: and and you know in the following century there were there were only a tiny tiny number of manuscripts or books in Arabic in uh, in Spain where you know there would have been probably hundreds I mean definitely hundreds of thousands probably even millions of them before that it's really um shocking hello it's Artemis For some time, we've been working with the visual historian Jordan Lloyd, and we've been telling you about his fascinating colourisation work. Well, recently, Jordan has launched his new project. It's a website called Unseen Histories, which showcases a broad range of fascinating historical material. You can read feature-length pieces there about female fashion in the Victorian era, or beautifully illustrated extracts from books like Susan Denham Wade's A History of Seeing. For those of you who have enjoyed Jordan's colorization work in the past, there's a full range of remastered photographs from the archives of the Library of Congress. It's history for our times. Do have a look for yourself at unseenhistories.com. I think we should go on to your third scene now. Um, and we're going to um, go northwards to a different Spanish city. So tell us where, 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 we, where we're going.
1: Yes. Um, well, we're going to Salamanca. And, and this scene is um, perhaps fortunately a bit less dramatic and a bit less distressing. <laughs> in fact, it's a much calmer scene. Yeah. So this time we find ourselves in a very calm, elegant setting. We are sitting beside the wooden bookshelves of the old library in Salamanca University. Um which is one of the oldest universities in Europe, actually. It it founded in 1218, so not not much um, later than Oxford and Cambridge universities were founded. Um, And it's the month of September in this scene, and again, Queen Isabella of Castile and her courtiers are sitting around listening to a scholar who's standing before them. He's a bearded man, he's very earnest, and his name is Antonio de Nebrija. Uh, and at this time, uh, he's Spain's most renowned Renaissance humanist, and he's an expert in Latin, uh, teacher of Latin. And uh, he, he was actually a brilliant uh, student himself who studied at Salamanca, and he won a scholarship to go uh, and study in Italy, where he stayed for 10 years, and he brought back um, a lot of humanist ideas. Um, and then he held the chair of Latin grammar at Salamanca. So, on this day, there's an atmosphere of expectancy uh, because he's presenting the Queen with a copy of his new book. And it's not just any book, it's a landmark work, uh, which is the first-ever grammar book of Castilian, or Spanish as we call it, uh, language, and it was printed in Salamanca anonymously. Um, And not only was it the first-ever work dedicated to the Spanish language and its rules, it's um, also the first grammar of any modern uh, vernacular European language to be published. And so, as she receives this tome, Queen Isabella looks intrigued, but she's puzzled. Um, and she asks Antonio what the merit uh, of such a work might be. Um, and his answer is very interesting because he echoes the views of her personal confessor, who was Fray Hernando de Talavera, the Bishop of Avila. And uh, he says, uh, after your highness has subjected barbarous peoples and nations of varied tongues, with conquest will come the need for them to accept the laws that the conqueror imposes on the conquered, and among them, our language. And with this work of mine, they'll be able to learn it, as we now learn Latin from the Latin grammar. Um, And so Isabella seems very happy about this, and she thanks him warmly and he bows. Um, So why why is the scene important? Um, Well, while Nebrija was speaking to the Queen, uh, at that very moment Columbus was crossing the Atlantic and he would arrive in the New World two months later. So Nebrija's explanation of the importance of the book in helping teach Spanish to the indigenous peoples who had their own tribal languages Um, is directly linked to Columbus's colonization of the Americas. And I think it directly connects the imposition of the Spanish language on the conquered peoples with the idea of nation building. And Nebrija himself claimed that language um, was the instrument of empire. Um, And so the effects of teaching Spanish in those countries were permanent. And nowadays, Spanish is the main language of... Central and Latin America, uh, except for Brazil, which is Portuguese speaking, um, and also 50% of the United States is Spanish speaking, too. But, I mean, Nebrija couldn't have known the full significance of his grammar book, which was reprinted many times, um, and, and it paved the way for Castilian Spanish to become a major world language. Um, and today, it's the world's second most widely spoken language after Mandarin Chinese. So, in a way, that was. It, The presenting of his grammar was was quite an important moment.
0: Definitely. And especially when you then consider that, you know, we were just talking about, about the removal of Arabic. And I know that a few years later, it became illegal to write in Arabic or use Arabic at all. So you can see it as this real moment of Castilian Spanish taking over from Arabic and being imposed as the national
1: language. You, you really can it was it was given it was formalized if you like at that, at that time um again interestingly um, back in the time of Alfonso X, the wise king whom I mentioned briefly um, at his court in the 13th century there he had actually made Castilian Spanish the official language of his court rather than Latin and he tried to vernacularize and
0: well he translated quite a lot of books into Castilian didn't he or, or... Uh, commissioned the translation. He did, of, yeah. and it was a
1: radical thing to do at the time, um, but at that stage, uh, because, you know, Spain is broken up into so many districts with so many different dialects, there was no, if you like, formal, formal set of rules, and, and they didn't really come in until till Nebrija's time, and, and even later, Spanish was very late developing as a European language in actual fact. That's
0: so interesting. Um, and then, of course, as you say, you know, other languages, uh, dictionaries started and and grammar books and learning aids started to be produced in, in all other vernacular languages. As they well. did. And,
1: and many of them were modelled on, on his his original grammar structure yeah. as well. Yeah,
0: that's amazing. So there's one thing I wanted to, to which isn't connected to your scenes, but it was just it just caught my imagination in your book, which is. Um, there's a museum of memory that's opened. You you, you describe quite recently, I think, in Granada, um, and uh, I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about that. And and yes, talk talk a bit about that before we finish. Uh,
1: well, the first thing I think to say is it's the most extraordinary space and building. Of um, course, you know if you've just come from. The Al-Baythin and all the old buildings of Granada in the city centre uh, and looked at the Alhambra Palace and then you go and visit this. It's a completely futuristic great white building um, in the middle of the Vega. Uh, it looks extraordinary from a distance and you go in to effectively another world. Um, it's dark inside and you've got a running commentary uh, on all the um, the different historical eras of Granada and Andalusia running past you on a screen. And it has a series of boxes, masses of little boxes, and you can pick up the lid of each one, and you can feel uh, some sand from the beach of Almeria, uh, or you can um, cut some wood from a tree that's been felled uh, in Granada and and smell it. And it's the most extraordinary visual, tactile, sensuous experience as well. and alongside that are, uh, if you like, animated figures. In they in, in sort of cases like soldiers, and you can press a button, and they will start to speak to you and tell you about what life was like as a peasant in the Middle Ages in Granada, or uh, what life was like if you were a nun at that time. Um, it, it's the most remarkable, innovative place, and um, an extraordinary testament to the history of the city and. Uh, of Andalusia I think.
0: It sounds amazing sounds so unusual and and innovative Uh, I have to say I I spent some time in Spain doing research and I was just so impressed by their museums that they're just in a different league really to any anything else I've ever experienced and I wonder if that museum is part of this sort of general Thing that seems to be going on there at the moment with, of facing up to their mus- the Muslim heritage and a kind of accepting the Muslim heritage and wanting to talk about it do, do you think that's the case because it's also true is it not that uh, I went to Cordoba and there's a Jewish museum that you can visit and I think those kind of things are also quite recent developments
1: they really are um, I, and I think you're absolutely right Violet I think if you like, the vexed issue of what is the real identity of Spain. Yeah. it always comes back, this issue of the Islamic heritage of the country, um, over and above its other heritages, of course. And this is a multicultural country, as as, as we've said. Um, So I think now people are really thinking about what the value and importance is of that Islamic heritage and what we might learn from it. Uh, or 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 take from it um, in present times when you know there are still a lot of um, tensions and conflicts uh, between Islam and Christianity in the present world uh, between Islam and the West um, and I think it's part of a, um, a a kind of view of the world which which look, seeks to enhance and and uh, draw attention to really the value of multicultural exchanges
0: yeah and I- And to celebrate it rather than to deny it, which is effectively what happened for a long time. So interesting. Well, there's just one question left, which I have to ask you. Um, And that is, of course, if you could have picked something up from one of these three moments that we've visited together today um, and brought it back with you to the present so you could keep it for yourself, what would it be?
1: Uh, Well, Violet, I'm, I'm meant to choose a ring Um, uh, Sultan Boabdil wore uh, a gold ring set with a turquoise, which um, was engraved with his name in Arabic. And it was said to be the dynastic ring of the Nazareth, which had been worn by his family for 250 years. Um, And when Boabdil was told the new governor of the Alhambra, who was going to replace him, was going to be the Count of Tendelia, who was a man called Íñigo López de Mendoza, he handed him this ring, saying uh, that he wished he should wear it and have better luck than he'd had in, in governing <laughs> the Alhambra. Um, and that ring remained in the Count's family um, until 1656, when the last Count of Tendilia died, and sadly the ring got lost. So, for me, that would be a really poignant and powerful memento of a man whom I greatly admire and respect and and wish I could have met
0: yeah I think that's a great choice perhaps you could even get it um adjusted and then you'd be able to wear it um yourself
1: that would be wonderful (laughs)
0: it would probably be a bit big for you I think as it was um thank you so much Elizabeth I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed our um trip to Granada and Spain today thank you
1: thank you Vargas. it's been an absolute pleasure
0: That was me, Violet Moller, talking to Professor Elizabeth Drayson a couple of weeks ago about her fascinating book, Lost Paradise, the Story of Granada, the first history of the city in English. It is a really compelling tale and I highly recommend it for its historical contents but also its ability to spirit you away to the heat of a Granadan summer with the pomegranate trees in full bloom. To see some pictures of this stunning city, please visit our website, tttpodcast.com. Happy Christmas, everyone, and until next time, goodbye.